Welcome to the Politics of Disaster podcast, a series created by students of the Johns Hopkins University School of Advanced International Studies in collaboration with the Hopkins Podcast on Foreign Affairs. We hope that you enjoy this episode in our four-part series. I'm your host, Kevin Chen, and today on this episode, we are joined by two guests, Nisreen Salty and Dan Azzi, to discuss the ground-level economic realities in Lebanon and the pre- and post-explosion decisions made by the Lebanese government. Dr. Nisreen Salty is an associate professor in the Department of Economics in the American University of Beirut. She works on development, economics, and political economy. Her research is on inequality and inequity and resources, access, and outcomes with a focus on health. Her work has appeared in Social Science and Medicine, The Lancet, Tobacco Control, the International Journal for Middle Eastern Studies, and the Journal of Economic Studies, among others. She obtained her PhD in economics from Princeton University in 2006 and a master's in public affairs in 1999. Hi, Nisreen. Thank you for joining us today on this podcast. Hi, Kevin. Thank you for having me. I would like to start off asking, what is the Lebanese economic situation like today? So the Lebanese economy is collapsing. Uh, The depth of the crisis is of historic proportions. The relative magnitude is the largest we've seen since probably World War I. Current projections of the size of the contraction in 2020 are at 20% of GDP. For months now, we've been witnessing business closures and with that, rising unemployment. The latest estimates of the unemployment rate are somewhere between 35 and 40%. So the economy is in depression. The depression is deep. But it's also been a very rapid decline. Uh, The poverty headcount is close to 55% today, and it was 25% only two years ago. We also have had inflation since October of last year. In fact, we graduated to hyperinflation last July. We were officially classified by uh, the economist Steve Hankey at Johns Hopkins. Um, So so in sum, the, the textbook diagnosis shows three layers of interrelated crises. One, the country is suffering a balance of payment crisis with demand for the U.S. dollar far exceeding dollar inflows. Two, the country is in a fiscal crisis with an insolvent government and a debt-to-GDP ratio that is well above its pre-crisis level, so really superlative, along with a growing deficit that is being monetized, so that's only making inflation worse. And three, the country's in a banking crisis with a loss of confidence with the banking system that's led to an ongoing bank run. And in response to that, there have been ad hoc capital controls, a discounting of deposits at unfavorable exchange rates, and more monetization to provide banks with liquidity, so even more rapid inflation. With the tragedy of the Beirut explosion, we have seen immense economic suffering in Lebanon. However, the economy was already in crisis before the explosion and even before the COVID-19 pandemic. Could you give a brief background of the economy's descent into crisis in late 2019? 
Yes, uh, certainly. So, yeah, the, the, the crisis uh, of this magnitude and this depth is not uh, the product of, of one shock. The economy had been in a slump for years with growth averaging around uh, less than a half percent, so 0.4 percent really of GDP uh, between 2011 and 2019. Um, also, that period witnessed rapid growth in inequality over the decade. So the, the, the descent into crisis starts with an economic model that was reliant on dollar inflows, primarily from the Lebanese diaspora, into a banking system that was having to offer an increasingly high interest rate to keep attracting the funds. Banks could afford it only because banking assets were, in turn, 70% deep in Lebanese sovereign debt, which was itself paying ridiculously high interest rates. So the, the next tile in the dominoes is the state, which was engaged in wasteful and clientelistic spending and wrought with corruption. That left very thin space for any private investment, almost, most, almost all of which went to um, real estate speculation anyway. On, on the monetary side, Lebanon maintained an exchange rate peg for over 20 years, that meant that the country became overwhelmingly reliant on imports because the peg overvalued the domestic currency, the lira, while exports dwindled to less than half of what they'd been a decade before um, the, this period of 2011 to 2019. The result of all of that is an economic model that favors consumption over investment and production, and um, consumption markets happen to be largely controlled by holders of import licenses and exclusive agencies, and therefore are highly concentrated. So the economic gears of this model were set to produce an increasingly unequal distribution of incomes, because hand in hand with the close to zero economic growth for a decade, we saw astronomical profits accrue to the banking sector in the four to five years before the collapse. In fact, recent research indicates that income and wealth inequality in Lebanon far exceeds that in countries like Brazil or South Africa, the sort of canonical examples of inequality that are always given on the global scale. So this is the pre-crisis pre setup. Uh, gradually, the inflows on which the economy relies slow down as business opportunities atrophy as a result of a decaying infrastructure a gangrenous corruption, and eventually when depositors start to worry about the banking system's solvency, the inflows stop altogether and, and the house of cards collapses. So what that did in late 2019 is it provokes a bank run. In response to the bank run, there are some discretionary and ad hoc capital controls that are put in place. Uh, the exchange rate collapses and with it emerge multiple parallel rates, unofficial and official, and black market rates, depositors lose access to their monies. And um, my sense is as long as the rules governing capital movements remain opaque and discretionary and arbitrary, I don't think the inflows will recover, which means that the downward spiral looks like it's going to continue. How did the COVID-19 pandemic, which initially came to Lebanon in early 2020, exacerbate the economic crisis? So the pandemic hit at a time when the country was already suffering a rapidly increasing poverty rate, 
high inflation, rising unemployment, an insolvent government with severely constrained ability to spend and therefore to provide any basic services. But as it did elsewhere, the pandemic brought with it drastic disruptions in economic activity, some leading to shortages, as, as it did in other countries, except that in Lebanon, the currency collapse and the monetization of government spending meant that imported goods had already become grossly unaffordable because of inflation. Again, as it did elsewhere, the pandemic meant a heavier reliance on digital infrastructure, but Lebanon's digital infrastructure is especially inadequate and unreliable because of years of waste and corruption and lack of investment. The pandemic meant greater need for healthcare services, again, as it did elsewhere in the world. But this, this happened in an economy where salaried healthcare workers are seeing their wages lose value every day, where drugs and medical supplies are becoming prohibitively expensive, if not just unavailable and where hospitals are now operating at full capacity, which is why right now, as we speak, we're in the midst of a lockdown. Um, another place where the pandemic was especially difficult to manage is education. Um, at the beginning of the last uh, school year, so 2019-2020 school year, Lebanon had witnessed the largest migration of pupils from private to public schools. In fact, it's estimated that it's around 12% of private school students made the switch in September 2019 at the beginning of the school year. And then in January, in the middle of the school year, another 40,000 students followed. So that enrollment in public schools increased by around 15% overnight. So the pandemic also hit during a time when enrollment in an under-resourced and impoverished public education sector was at a record high. And this in a system that's far less able to adapt to a switch to digital learning or online delivery. And another aspect that I think is worth mentioning here is that one of the consequences of lockdowns and social distancing everywhere has been uh, a rise in gender-based violence. Well, in Lebanon, lockdowns came after months of an economic crisis that was in full swing. And there, there had already been signs and reports of increased incidents in gender-based violence as early as November 2019, so well before the pandemic. And then on that, uh, on top of that, you add uh, lockdowns and social distancing and the rise that we see in the reported incidents um, with internal security forces, with NGOs that work on, uh, on gender-based violence is absolutely alarming. Adding to the already difficult situation you just described, how did the Beirut explosion affect an economy that the Time magazine has grimly defined as on the brink of collapse, and the economist has said is slipping towards an economic abyss? So yeah, so on top of all of these layers of woes and misery came the August 4th explosion at the port. So uh, what has been described as the largest non-nuclear explosion in history. So the, the geographical distribution of the damage is um, obviously limited to the area within the shock waves of the blast. And that area is large, but, but it's self-contained. Um, and so that the destruction on top of the economic and, health, and public health crises includes a wide variety of neighborhoods. Uh, some are industrial, some are commercial, some are residential, 
and they span a wide variety of classes as well. So there's working class neighborhoods, high end neighborhoods, uh, historic and uh, brand new. So it's a mix. And of course, all of this suffered tremendous damage. In fact, estimates of the size of the physical damage is um, at around $4.2 billion. But on top of the physical damage, uh, the explosion also led to a disruption of activities and flows, which clearly spreads well beyond the area of physical destruction. And the estimated size of these disruptions in economic flows is on the order of another $3.2 billion. And just to put these in perspective, to scale them, the country's GDP for this year is projected to be around $41 billion. So we're looking at a destruction of value, of resources, because of the physical damage that amounts to close to 10% of GDP. And then a disruption of economic flows and activities, that's another 8% of GDP. And so that's, and that's on top of all the projected contraction that happened before August 4th, and that continues. How has the economic and banking crisis affected people's daily lives in Lebanon? So with the ad hoc uh, capital controls, depositors have effectively lost access to their savings. And uh, those whose savings are in Lebanese pounds, as opposed to US dollars, which was another option that you had in the Lebanese banking system. Um, so those with savings Lebanese pounds have seen the value of their inaccessible savings get decimated overnight. The fact that there's been no official government-led crisis management has only perpetuated this feeling of panic and the prolonged bank run that started in October of 2019. It's prolonged it into its second year now. Uh, the multiple concurrent exchange rates, some of them official, some semi-official, some black market driven, has deepened the sense of uncertainty and it's created a massive hurdle to regular business transactions particularly with external partners, so international trade. The freefall, because of no concerted centralized crisis management effort, has led to a proliferation of wasteful parallel arrangements, um, a growing black market, an expanding cash economy, rampant smuggling. The cost of living has shot up. Uh, the economy was already overwhelmingly reliant on imports, and now with no access to foreign currency, imports have become prohibitively expensive. The official estimate of the price index of, say, the average food basket uh, has been multiplied by a factor of five between September of 2019 and September of 2020. This is according to the Central Administration for Statistics. Um, the average transport cost has increased uh, by 130% during the same period. And this is still within, we're still, we're still in a situation where the central bank is providing its rapidly depleting foreign currency reserves at the official exchange rate. So at the, you know, highly overvalued in favor of the local currency exchange rate. It's so, so the central bank is providing its resource, its, its reserves to importers of fuels and of medicines and of basic food supplies. So it's still, in effect, subsidizing essential imports. Uh, and once, once that subsidy stops because the resources, the, the foreign currency reserves are depleted, uh, it's not at all clear where consumer prices might head. 
As we briefly mentioned earlier, there has been a peg of 1500 Lebanese lira to 1 US dollar. How has the currency crisis affected this exchange rate and its future outlook? So the currency collapse and the inflationary environment are causing catastrophic income and wealth destruction. So most salaried workers, for instance, in the country are paid in lira, in the local currency, and uh, there have been no adjustments made to salaries. So the purchasing power of their incomes has dropped substantially over the past year. A lot of retirees whose pensions were in lira have also seen the value of their pensions disappear, and they probably have very little or no prospects of earning other incomes at their age. Another segment of the population was also reliant on interest income from savings before the crisis. So that, that too has stopped. There's only really a very negligible minority of salaried workers who were paid in dollars. Um, and even then, many, many of these, most of these were paid in, in dollars that were already in the banking system, which means that today they, that those same dollars are subject to the capital controls. So they're only accessible in the local currency at an exchange rate that is well below the market rate. So salaried workers and pensioners um, are gravely affected by the fact that the peg is uh, no longer in effect and that the currency has collapsed. At the same time, the fact that there is no centralized managed crisis leading group or crisis recovery group has meant that instead of trying to cushion the blow or start a recovery, multiple exchange rates are proliferating and all sorts of inefficient and parallel arrangements are in place. Uncertainty has meant that it's very difficult for any individual to protect themselves from further collapse or to ensure themselves against other shocks. From my knowledge, a large part of Lebanon's revenue comes from expatriates and has prevented the country from slipping further into an economic collapse. If the situation continues to decline, will this revenue be enough to prevent an actual famine? Um, there, there's, there's several sources of pressure on this form of revenue, on the inflow of remittances. And, and some of the pressure is external. Uh, so a lot of these remittances come from Lebanese working in Gulf Cooperation Council countries, for instance. And many of these countries are suffering from the slumping oil prices, but also from the general disruptions of the pandemic. In fact, the World Bank has predicted that, that there'll be a global slowdown in remittances of around 40%. Uh, so, so remittances will slow down at, at the source, right, w wherever it is that they come from, but particularly when they originate from oil-rich countries, as many of the remitt remittances uh, to Lebanon do. But then on the receiving end, there are also hurdles that I think if they persist will likely reduce remittances or prevent the recovery of remittances to the pre-crisis levels. Uh, there's a general mistrust of the banking and financial institutions because of uh, the ad hoc measures that they've adopted over the past 14 months. And there are barriers um, that uh, are being imposed on daily transactions with a move to the cash economy that also 
are likely to discourage further remittances. There's rising social unrest. There's lawlessness. Uh, both of these are on the rise. They have been since the beginning of the crisis. So I, I don't see that remittances are a very secure or tight um, safety net for the future. Uh, I think another source of foreign currency inflow into the country could be exports. Uh, and there was a general trend to try to look towards exports as one way to start the recovery. But of course, with the damaged infrastructure at the port and, and the chaos around insurance policies related to um, international trade due after the explosion, as you can imagine, uh, on the one hand, and then there's continued volatility of the situation in Syria, uh, on the other hand, is meant that all of the country's borders for international trade are severely compromised. So even the hope of reliance on exports as a source of foreign currency inflow is shaken, particularly since the explosion. Given your expertise in the study of economic inequality, could you give us some insight into the effects of the economic crisis on the most vulnerable in Lebanon? Sure. Um, so there are many pre-crisis studies of the socioeconomic situation of particular subpopulations in Lebanon that show that they're especially vulnerable. So refugees and migrant workers and the Lebanese in rural areas and in some provincial cities as well, we already know that many of them suffered multiple layers of deprivation even before the collapse. But now with an imploding labor market and with hyperinflation, these subpopulations who are already extremely vulnerable before the crisis are even more exposed. So that is what the tripling of the extreme poverty rate that we've seen over the last year is likely capturing. So yeah, we went from something like 8% extreme poverty to close to 23% extreme poverty today. Uh, but at the same time, the poverty rate has also doubled the general poverty rate, not the extreme poverty rate. So this is a result of large swaths of the middle class being pushed below the poverty line as real wages and pensions dissipate and lifetime savings get liquidated. This is a class that is worst hit by this continued practice of what we're calling lirification. So the, tra the transformation of savings and dollar deposits into lira, into the local currency at unfavorable rates, which is effectively shifting the burden of debt reduction to small depositors. So the nature of the crisis has meant that a larger burden is falling on salaried workers than on the self-employed, on the elderly who tend to be pensioners uh, or to rely on remittances, on the unemployed, because the labor market is practically imploding, on women, um, in addition to the, the groups that are traditionally, uh, even from before the crisis, identified as more economically or socioeconomically vulnerable and deprived. Meanwhile, with the absence of any centralized crisis management and with a delegation of authority to banks to decide on the measures and restrictions on financial flows, bank shareholders have been given free reign to shield themselves and their astronomical profits from the last decade from any of these losses. 
So there's been an unequal and regressive apportioning of the loss in sort of an ad hoc basis over the last 14 months that is entirely immoral, completely unethical, completely unjust, and clearly leading to further and further inequality, as the poverty rate already shows, of going from 25 to 55% in two years. Uh, but on top of being unjust or unethical, this regressive distribution of losses is also terribly inefficient, right? Because this is only going to reduce bank losses very, very slowly by delegating them on to small and medium depositors. Uh, and, and as it does that, it's going to continue to drag the whole economy into the gutter and uh, continue the slow spiral downward uh, as long as no comprehensive crisis management plan is put in place so that these practices are no longer to tolerated. Well, Nisreen, thank you for your insights today. I think it is important to keep your comments in mind as Lebanon moves forward uh, after this economic crisis, COVID-19 and explosion. We are glad to have you on this podcast. Thank you. Thank you, Kevin, for your questions and thank you for the opportunity to be on this podcast. Next up, we have Mr. Dan Asi joining us today to discuss the Lebanese banking system and the possibility of reform. Mr. Dan Azi was the head of global markets in the Middle East, North Africa, and Pakistan for Standard Chartered Bank, retiring in 2015 as CEO Chairman of the board in Lebanon. He obtained an MBA from Columbia University and pivoted into investment banking, rising to managing director within seven years. He has held executive positions for Bear Stearns in Hong Kong, Deutsche Bank in New York, Merrill Lynch in London, UBS in Auckland. He has also been involved in philanthropy and volunteering, and is a regular op-ed writer and lecturer in economics, monetary policy, and political reform. Hi, Dan. It's wonderful to have you on this podcast. Thank you very much for coming. Thank you for inviting me. It's, a, it's an honor. We would like to start off this segment asking, since 2019, there has been a surge in the use of the term lolar on the Lebanese social media. You have been credited with creating this term. Could you explain how this word came to be and how is it being used today? Uh, okay, so... Uh... The term lolar, uh, the the concept of lolar, meaning a local dollar, a Lebanese dollar, is is not actually very new. There's been a bunch of people that have talked about it. Uh, Minister Sharb al-Nahas talked about it for a long while, you know, talking about the local dollar. And and this is related to the, you know, in banking, the multiplier effect. So in a, in a place like the United States, as you know, if you deposit $100,000 in the bank and the bank uses it to lend somebody and then that person uh, buys a car with it and then the dealer deposits the $100,000, so the original hundred becomes you know, $200,000 minus the minus reserve requirements. Uh, and that's normal in banking system, in, a, in any banking system. But in, in a place like the United States where you, you guys have the FDIC insurance, uh, if, you know, if the U.S. government guarantees an account up to two hundred fifty thousand dollars now. The uh, that means if there's a run on a bank, the guarantee is credible, 
partly because it's Uncle Sam behind it, but also partly because the U.S. government can always print dollars to cover that. So in Lebanon, we were kind of doing the same thing, except we're not using our own currency. We're using your currency, the dollar. So as a result of that, uh, when the multiplier effect happens, if, if you ever run into trouble, uh, the, the reserves of the central bank are what's supposed to cover that. And in fact, there is no guarantee in Lebanon like the FDIC. Actually, there is one. It's, it was it was tiny, 5 million lira, which is in, in the days of the peg is about $3,333. So in reality, because the because most of the deposits are in dollars, at one point we're talking about uh, two thirds of the deposits were in dollars. It's much higher now, and the deposits were around 180 billion dollars, which is multiples of GDP. That meant that if we ever if we ever run into trouble, the trouble is you know is massive. It's it's just historic, uh, and so what. What was happening, though, is that the other problem that was happening in a place like the United States, banks usually use the deposit minus the reserves to lend to businesses, credit cards, auto loans, mortgages, whatever. And as people pay those mortgages and loans and whatever, then any demand on the deposits can be met, plus the help of the U.S. government like FDIC if it's needed. So in the case of Lebanon, uh, only or less than a third of the deposits were lent in these traditional ways. Okay, the the rest of the money was lent either to the Lebanese government, which again is fine because the Lebanese government has taxing authority. But the vast majority, like at this point in time, uh, one hundred seven billion dollars out of around one hundred forty five billion dollars is lent to the central bank. Except the central bank isn't doing something productive that generates dollars to pay depositors back. The, the, the central bank was using these primarily to support the Lebanese peg to the, to the dollar, like the, the level of the lira, our currency at 1500 to the lira. That was where the, the depositors' money was going. A little bit was going other places like uh, paying for the fuel for the electricity company, uh, coupons on uh, euro bonds and stuff like that. But the primary usage of it was on, on the peg, which gave every Lebanese citizen a standard of living much higher than the productivity of the country. Uh, in other words, the country as a whole was sort of like someone living on, on his or her credit card. So once the limit was reached and you can't make the minimum payments anymore, you're in, you're in deep trouble. That's kind of what happened. So what I when I when the Lola term came up and a friend of mine kind of came up with the term. So the concept I came up with the concept in an article in I think August of 2019, where I basically made a statement and in 2018 as well, I made a statement that deposits were gone. And I I sort of predicted that uh there was capital controls gonna come, people can't withdraw their money anymore, and that the local dollars were only gonna be used locally. And you can't buy a car because a car is, uh, you know, you're able to ship the car and sell it in Dubai. So you don't have to take the Lebanese the Lebanese dollar, which is basically monopoly money. And therefore, the only usage for the Lebanese dollar or the Lolar would be in local transactions for stuff that can't be shipped and sold somewhere else, such as real estate. So today, the only usage for, for Lolars is to, to buy or sell apartments or land, which can't be shipped to Dubai or us or wherever to sell it and as a result of that you can you see a disparity in pricing so if you you can buy an apartment for three million lolars 
or if you pay cash, you'll buy the same apartment for a million US dollars if you pay cash or in a, an account outside Lebanon, in other words, real dollars. So that's sort of the effect of this thing. In your opinion, what effect would a floating currency have in Lebanon given the current circumstances? Okay, so it depends. If the, the, the problem with the currency, with the floating currency today, is the fact that we have a negative balance of payment. That's sort of what I was saying before on the fact that the peg gave, gave, overvalued the currency and gave a typical Lebanese a much higher buying power than the country's productivity, which meant we were incentivized to buy nice stuff. The latest iPhone every year, new cars every two, three years, vacations in Cyprus, Turkey, Greece, Europe, anywhere. Uh, so this is this meant that there were more dollars leaving the country than coming in. Uh, so obviously, uh, the, the lira, would, if it wasn't supported, it would collapse. So the only way that the lira stops collapsing is if this balance of payment becomes zero. Either we start making stuff you know, that we sell to the outside world, whatever that is. Or uh, if we start getting, uh, you know, more money coming in, uh, sorry, if we, more money coming in, or we, we, we go on a diet and have less money coming out, okay? Uh, going on a diet means you don't change your car every three years, you change it every 10 years. You don't buy a Cadillac Escalade, you buy a Kia and so on, that type of adjustment lifestyle. We have hundreds of thousands, for example, of foreign workers, domestic helpers, construction workers, etc., cetera, uh, blue-collar cheaper labor from countries that you know from other countries it's sort of like in the if imagine in the united states you have a minimum wage of 15 dollars an hour yet you allow people to come in from mexico for example and take jobs for three dollars an hour so in lebanon we, we we have a minimum wage but it applies to lebanese there but it doesn't preclude somebody from bringing in somebody else from the outside uh, for a cheaper salary. And of course, that person is coming in because they want to send money home to their country. So this is all dollars flowing out. So if we get to a stage where the balance of payment is flat, then the lira stabilizes. In my opinion, a, a, you know, a floating rate is a good thing because it's like when you enter shops today and they take your temperature to see if you have corona, right? So the peg was a way to suppress the fact that our temperature was getting very high and we had a very bad fever and we were sick. So if the currency is collapsing, that's an indicator that, hey, we've we got a problem. We've got to do something about it. So there's two factors today that are affecting the currency or having putting pressure on the currency. One is that the balance of payment is still negative. And the second one is the fact that the central bank is printing lira to pay off salaries because the tax revenue is not enough. And the most important factor is probably the fact that he's printing lira to pay off the dollar deposit owed, deposits owed to the depositors because the, the the dollar reserves or the dollar deposits have all been consumed on the peg in the in the past years. How has the blast affected the economic situation in Peru and Lebanon? Uh, it's uh, it was just the, the icing on the cake, I guess. It was the last thing we needed. So we had we had the we had a major economic and monetary problem. Uh, you know, which is the fact that we have about a hole of about a hundred billion dollars on a country whose GDP today might be maybe it used to be sixty billion last year. It's probably less than half that today. So that's a massive amount of losses in the banking sector. Uh, that's the bad news. The good news is that those losses are what I call man-made or virtual, in the sense that uh, you know, the example I like to give is you know, if somebody stabbed me 
that's a real problem and uh, you know that has to be solved in a real way you gotta take out the the dagger you gotta stitch my wound you gotta clean it you gotta put me in the icu etc right uh and that problem is the same whether it happened today or six thousand years ago but if i told you that you have a million dollars in the bank and you lost say five hundred thousand dollars that's what i call a man-made problem like if i told you six thousand years ago that you lost a million dollars in the bank you'd be like what's a bank what's a million dollars right i wouldn't have to define what's a stabbing of a dagger so up until the port explosion our problem was man-made or virtual which meant that the solution can be drawn on a board you can't solve a stabbing on a board. You gotta, you gotta do stuff. You need a surgeon. So our problem in Lebanon was all virtual or man-made up until the port explosion. The port explosion is a real problem because the port disappeared, uh, the grain silos disappeared. You gotta rebuild all that stuff. That's that. That's so both problems require dollars, but one of them uh, is more theoretical. The other one is more practical. So in other words, it just added to it. It added to the triage of how you would spend any foreign aid that would come in or even local resources. We have been talking about a dire economic situation which has worsened with the pandemic and the blast. Lebanon had requested the International Monetary Fund's assistance as early as May. As of now, negotiations have stalled around the conditionality of that loan. What do you make of the possibility of this IMF bailout program and its conditions? Well, it's pretty clear that the international community, and this has been stated by many participants, including the French, the U.S. ambassador, the U.S. Uh, secretary of state, etc., that this time around, I mean, in the past, we've been used to getting foreign aid with the fact like, here's, here's some money, uh, go reform, and our political leadership would be like, sure, wink, wink, and they would take off and the money would be wasted. This time around, they're asking for preconditions to the aid. And some of the stuff is quite, you know, concrete, quite quantifiable, like the forensic audit, for example, of the central bank. So, you know, there's $107 billion owed, owed by the central bank to the banks. And one of the prerequisites seems to be by the international community, meaning the Europeans or the donors to, to, the, to the IMF, the United States, France, the EU, IMF, everybody's asked saying, we want the forensic audit of the central bank. We want to know what you did with $107 billion. Uh, and it seems there's been a lot of pushback by the, you know, by the political leadership in the country, which leads me to believe that the request for a forensic audit was well placed. And it means that there are some skeletons hidden that uh, this thing might uncover. In any event, it, it seems like it seems that the national community, and I hope they are serious about this, are not going to give us aid until we do what's called reforms. The problem with the word reforms, it's very abstract. In my opinion, the forensic audit is the first practical manifestation of this abstract concept. And it opens the doors to, to further reform, real reform. So in my mind, I'm hoping that they will stick to their guns on this one and insist on the forensic audit and subsequent types of practical steps to uncover the corruption uh, you know, in the country. After the Beirut explosion, the IMF sent out a statement suggesting four reforms Lebanon should focus on, such as to restore the solvency of public finances, to place temporary safeguards to avoid continued capital outflows, to reduce the protracted losses in many state-owned enterprises, and to expand the social security net to protect the most vulnerable. How likely is the Lebanese government able to meet these guidelines in their current situation? 
Um, I, I think that the, the, those ones you mentioned are not that difficult to do. You know, the, the solvency of the public finances, I mean, that could mean a lot of different things. If they mean, uh, you know, downsize the government, it's kind of difficult because jobs in the government, which is very, very bloated, were used to, were used to buy loyalty. You know, you, you, for example, you as a political leader would hire me to, to, you know, overpay me in some silly government job, and then you would win the votes of me and my whole family, right? That's kind of the way they divvied up the, uh, the, the you know, the goodies to, to buy influence. Um, so that one is a bit difficult. The uh, the safeguards of ca- continued capital outflow, This what this means is a capital controls law. As you know, there has been unofficial capital controls since last October, even before to an extent, uh, but now it's over a year, a year and a quarter later, and they still haven't done that, which obviously, which and there's a reason they haven't done that. In my opinion, the most rational reason is for them to allow the themselves and their cronies to to use the whatever little reserves we have to escape themselves, either through cash withdrawals if they can't open an account overseas or simply to to send the money overseas. So I'm pretty sure that a capital controls law will pass in the next few months. However, more importantly, we need to demand something else now. We need to demand to see all the transfers above a certain amount that happened since October 17 to see why they they uh, pushed back against this thing and who was able to send money out and to see if we can get that money back. Uh, the other spot is the social security net. Obviously, the government would support that because that's free money. Uh, we here would want the social security net to be divvied up in a fair way to people that need it rather than again back to the cronyism of of giving it you know to to my supporters uh, as a political leader so that's the kind of stuff we got to be careful about so some of the stuff they can do but it, it kind of depends also on how much adult supervision there is on how they divvy up the money given the political situation you have given how likely will the Beirut explosion force the Lebanese government to enact these reforms to be honest with you, the Beirut explosion, uh, as unlikely as one would think, it's sort of become a non-event now. I mean, at the beginning, people were upset and everything. And like everything else, I mean, they haven't even come up with a conclusion. Uh, they haven't really uh, blamed anybody. They haven't assigned, they haven't, you know, there's no accountability as as we, you know, in, in any of this stuff. It, it seems that uh, people have moved on, unfortunately, from this thing. So I don't think the Beirut explosion itself is, is a factor anymore. Plus, you got to remember that people have lost 80% of their purchasing power the, when the, you know, when the support of the, of things like fuel and whatever, the, the, and inflation goes up even further, people are going to be, I mean, imagine if your salary, the buying power, your salary went down by 80%. Uh, even if you, even if there's a big catastrophe in your town, you may be distracted from that. So I think people now are, are thinking about other things. You mentioned in the Wall Street Journal that the Lebanese leadership developed a Ponzi scheme in the banking system without realizing it, which led to an economic collapse. Would you mind elaborating on that notion and its consequences? So what happened was, I mean, look, we've always imported more than we exported. This is not something new. The only difference is that the deficit was compensated for by the remittances by expat Lebanese, you know, the, the hundreds of thousands of Lebanese doing well and living outside, sending money to their parents, the hundreds of thousands of Lebanese sending money in to 
their savings, basically. I mean, many of these people work in countries with no retirement, right? There's no 401k plan or a pension or uh, whatever. So they just saved their money and sent it to the Lebanese banks, uh, after, you know, thinking I'll work 10, 20, 30 years in the Gulf or Africa. I'll come back when I'm 60 or whatever and retire in Lebanon with my savings. That's the plan. So uh, what they what happened is that when the standard, when the there was a surplus between 2008 to 2010, when the global crisis happened, there was a reverse flight to, to perceived quality. So you know how today, whenever something happens, people buy dollars, people buy U.S. Treasuries. So when the 2008 collapse happened and U.S. banks were uh, collapsing, European banks were collapsing, a lot of Lebanese with wealth outside the country transferred their money to Lebanese that banks to the perceived safety of Lebanese banks. So we actually had a big surplus in those years of almost $20 billion. Now, of course, when you send $20 billion into a small country, you know, that's more than half the GDP at the time. And, you know, this increases the tax revenue, it increases growth, it increases a lot of things. It was not spent in a very wise way, but what it did was increase salaries, increase increase GDP per capita, increase employment in the government, etc. This increased spending and imports and the standard of living. So now, uh, you know, and the assumption was that this surplus was going to continue forever, except when 2011 came, it was a deficit. So at that point in time, uh, you know, we were losing money from the deposits. And basically, the deposits were used to support the peg and the lifestyle. Uh, come 2016, the, the Lebanese Central Bank did these financial engineering transactions, which are essentially, if you if you take out all the bells and whistles, it was paying an atrocious amount of interest up to, in some cases, you know, 15 17, 20, 25, in some cases, 30% on US dollars per year uh, to attract dollars from expats uh, and to create artificial profits for banks and to bail out a couple of banks, all kinds of stuff like that. Um, and there was no investment on the other side. So the way the system kept going was basically by attracting new depositors so that they can pay interest on the old depositors while they use the principal to back the peg or the fuel or whatever. So they kept doing this, except when you're paying that kind of interest, that high, you run out of money pretty quickly. So at some point, you know, so that's the Ponzi part. The Ponzi part was the fact that you we brought, you know, we attracted money from the diaspora and we didn't invest it in something that produces a, a rate of return that's higher than what we're paying. Uh, what we did with it, we just spent it. And then we just got a new guy to cover for the old guy. And we kept doing this until the Ponzi stopped working. And that's when the whole system collapsed. What reforms are necessary to prevent the continuation of the system and what it would take for them to put it into place? I think that here we can go back to the to my old premise about the you know man-made problems versus real problems. When you when you look at the situation in Lebanon, the whole the hundred billion dollar hole, it's it's actually technically pretty simple. Uh, it's not like, you know, the war days where you had to take out the mines and you had to construct the downtown and the whole country was destroyed. In this case, the whole problem is the fact that we have $115 billion in U.S. dollars claims in the in the banking system. And in fact, a total amount of $140 billion in claims against real dollars, the reserves of about 17, 18 billion dollars. So we have 115 billion that are all chasing the 18 billion or 17 billion that the central bank has. So the multimillionaire, the guy with 100 million dollars, wants part of that money to buy his new yacht or the new Bentley. Uh, but 
the, the you know the guy with a hundred thousand dollars wants wants that money as well to send his daughter to study at Johns Hopkins. You know, both of them are competing for the same dollar. But also, you've got the importer of gasoline or diesel into the country to light up the you know electricity and all that. He or she also wants a part of the reserves or the seventeen billion. So clearly, there's just too too many claims against this pot of reserves. So when you look at it, the solution is very simple. Either we got some by some magic wand, we got to increase the reserves to equal the claims, or we got to reduce the claims to equal the reserves, or at least. Uh, you know, small enough where that it wouldn't, you can't tell the difference that you don't have the, all of the money, right? And the way to do that is really about distribution of losses. Now, the good news, usually, I mean, a lot of universities like yourselves would talk about inequality and the Gini uh, coefficient and all that, right? So in Lebanon, our Gini coefficient is pretty bad. We, our inequality is pretty high. Usually that's bad news. In this case, it's good news because remember the deposits I told you about back when they were almost 180 billion? Well, more than half of those, 90 billion, were owned by 6,000 people. That means that a because because such a small number of people own a disproportionate amount of the wealth which has been lost, that means that you can also allocate the losses disproportionately to these 6,000 people, thereby somewhat shielding the other 5 million people in Lebanon. So that's really the key to the solution. The key to the solution is then an equitable distribution of losses to the, to, to the people that were, you know, to the richest folks that were earning... Uh, the, the Ponzi interest, m- way higher than Bernie Madoff, by the way, you know, like I said, 17, 18% on US dollars. So it's very easy to do that theoretically and technically. Once you do that, you can save the small depositor, you can arrest the devaluation of the lira, we can get to a level in the economy that is uh, commensurate with our productivity. And that's when we can start growing again the proper way by pro- by creating an economy that produces stuff that foreigners want to buy. Basically, and you know, so the first step is allocate the losses so that we stop the bleeding. And then the next step is to grow the economy by by building, designing an economy that produces stuff that a guy like you would want to buy from me. In the same way that I go to the US to buy a Chevrolet or a Corvette or an iPhone or whatever, a, a, an American product, we in Lebanon at some point in time have to produce something that you in America or some in Asia or Europe would want to buy. Where that could be a call center, that could be software engineering uh, product or, or even uh, in the media or fashion or whatever. we got to find our competitive advantage in the world, our place in the world, and find out what we can sell that someone like you would want to buy. Lebanon currently has one of the highest debt-to-GDP ratios in the world. Estimates say that the public debt climbed to $93.4 billion U.S. dollars at the end of June 2020. You mentioned in the article you wrote in Jadalia back in February that if we default, then we do it now. If not, we execute a plan to never default. With the aftermath of the Beirut explosion, how do you foresee the Lebanese government in going with either option, if at all? Well, uh, as you know, the government made a decision to default already. So that's, you know, that's done. But here's the thing. I, I think a lot of people uh, focus too much, I mean, on, on the debt to GDP ratio, because we all went to the same school schools 
we went, we studied the same macroeconomic classes, probably the same books we all used. And it's all it's always about debt to GDP ratio, GDP growth good, GDP shrinkage bad. This is what we all study, right? So all the rating agencies, everybody spent too much IMF even spent too much time looking at the debt to GDP ratio. When we analyze the the debt to GDP ratio, so it's ninety billion dollars. This is at the rate of fifteen hundred in the lira, by the way. It's much lower today because the lira today is trading at eighty six hundred. But let's let's call it ninety billion. So sixty billion is in our own currency, lira, and it's internal. So that's no problem. We can print that. That leaves thirty billion dollars in U.S. dollars. So that's the that's the debt. And then in that thirty billion dollars, last year at this time we had maybe five between five and ten billion that was foreign owned. The rest was internal. Uh, even today, after the banks, uh, let's just say, did a bit of a boo boo by selling it to the to the foreigners right before the default. Foreign held debt is less than fifteen billion, less than fifteen billion dollars. Uh, so a restructuring of that debt today would cost. Let's say we pay thirty cents on the dollar. That means what we owe foreigners is five billion spread over twenty years. That's two hundred fifty million dollars a year. It's not a big deal in the grand scheme of things. So debt to GDP ratio, in my mind, is not the main problem. Well, the main problem is the hundred and seven billion dollars in debt which is with the central bank. That's the part that everybody didn't see. And everybody was focusing on the 93, you know, 90 billion on the, on the government side, but they didn't look at the 110 billion with the central bank. That's what caused this whole thing to implode in my opinion. So, uh, and that one, we talked about it before the, in reality, you know, if the foreign debt can be covered with 5 billion in a, in a restructuring, uh, and then small deposits can cost us maybe two or 3 billion, if we look at the reserves, we got 18 billion in cash. We got 18 billion in gold. That's 36 billion. So in reality, we have, you know, something like 35 billion dollars in 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 liquid assets, in a GDP of less than 20 billion dollars. In other words, we're a rich country. I mean, there is no amount of aid, IMF or otherwise, that will even match that. So the trick here, if we can allocate the losses, that means we can use that 35 billion dollars again, assuming that it's not run by these. Uh, incompetent, corrupt officials. We can use the thirty-five billion dollars to start lending in ways not like we did before. Lending you to buy—I mean, lending me to buy a new, brand new imported car, or uh, you know, to do a, uh, a plastic surgery, or to take a vacation in Cyprus, or buy a new iPhone, or all that other stupid type of lending we used to do. If we use that lending to 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 fund startups that that create imports that people want to buy or even you know lending to buy a cow <laughs> i mean a cow it's 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 collateralized plus it produces milk that can feed the country if we change the uh, you know if we change the the type of lending we do with all this money that is now freed up because now the the 115 billion or the 90 billion by these multimillionaires fake wealth is claiming if we get rid of that problem then then the country's rich in my opinion and can can even fix itself with no imf or minimal imf intervention you know i mean i think we need somebody like the imf more for the adult supervision of some of the incompetent and corrupt officials we have rather than uh, for anything else we appreciate the insights you've given us today this is information that we will take with us as Beirut's economy moves forward with the disasters she has experienced this year. Thank you so much for your time and thank you so much for coming to the podcast today. Thank you, sir. Have a nice day. This episode is put together by Clara Artoni, Luke Scheidermeyer, Kevin Chen, Sarah Parkinson, 
and the editors on the podcast of Foreign Affairs Team. 